This is the Macmillan Library Podcast, a community conversation maker, bringing you curated conversations with Macmillan librarians, community members, authors, musicians, artists, and more. Welcome back to the Macmillan Conversation Maker Podcast. Thank you for joining us on this new series in cooperation with Wisconsin Rapids Community Media. We're posting the audio of interviews and presentations that they have recorded. This presentation took place on November 14th. The Wood County Drug Task Force invited Dr. Doug Gallick to talk about prescription pain medication, pain management, and alternatives to opioids, recently at the City of Wisconsin Rapids Council Chambers. I have linked to the video in the show notes and on the Macmillan Library webpage where this podcast is hosted in case you want to see some of the video and the slides that Dr. Gallick had. He references them in the audio. And now the presentation by Dr. Doug Gallick. Let's get started. So who is this guy? I'm a husband of uh, an amazing wife named Lori. I've got four boys. Uh, I am a pilot. I'm passionate about piloting. I, like to, I fly a fixed-wing little airplane. I also fly a little uh, powered paragliders. Um, so I'm kind of I'm kind of all over the board. I uh, have passions for uh, you know for wor- the world poor. I uh, this leads me on mission trips around, uh, usually yearly around the around the country around the world um, where I go and sometimes I do medicine, sometimes I do other things uh, to different countries. And uh, I've been in town for 23 years. I'm an orthopedic surgeon uh, by trade. I'm in the business of pain and its relief. And that makes me a prescriber of, of opioids. Uh, but this, uh, this pedigree uh, doesn't mean that much to me. Uh, one thing you need to know about me is I'm a man of deep faith in God. And so I tell you this, um, not because I want you to think a certain way about me, just so you understand uh, the perspective from which I uh, speak. I, when Kurt asked me if, to talk, I said, "All right, God, I'll uh, I'll see um, see what I can do to kind of enlighten folks." It turns out that uh, as it is, I'm pretty certain that God had me uh, gave me this opportunity basically to educate me rather than uh, educating you. Uh, so I appreciate this chance to uh, to have you guys. Listen, and from my perspective, in my past, certainly, I've been a heavy prescriber of opioids, and I've changed a lot over the course of the past 23 years, partly because surgery's improved and we haven't had to use as much opioids, and truth is, people are doing a lot better because we're not using a lot uh, of opioids as well as we have been, at least, and, and I'm, since I've taken this uh, task up, certainly my prescribing has changed in the past few weeks, and I, I anticipate it to continue along those lines. So uh, first, a disclaimer, a lot of what you'll see in terms of statistics and some of these studies, I'm quoting others. They're not my original studies. The, Dr. Teeter and Dr. Finn are both, uh, I don't know, guys who uh, 
bang this drum, and you'll see a lot of statistics on the screen. On the screen, if you want the full disclosure, I'll I can give you all my list. But basically, none of it's mine. We're in a current state of an of opioid epidemic. Obviously, from all your backgrounds, you guys are getting experience in that uh, in that realm. We're going to talk a few numbers here. Uh, 2016 numbers: 116 people died a day uh, for the year. That adds up to about 42,000. The next year, depending upon how you count it, it went up 16%. So we're not making any great strides in this. So 50,000 people a year, if you uh, equate that, if you remember back uh, when we had the 9-11 tragedy, we lost 2,900 people, most of them in their highly productive age, 25 to 50-year-old uh, age range. Uh, that, If you equate that to the uh, heroin and opioid epidemic, that's happening every three weeks. And I, I marvel at the the death toll of this uh, this epidemic. You know, we had lots of uh, lots of press, and the whole world was up in arms over the 3,000 people we lost, uh, you know, 18 years ago. Not that that was anything slight, but we're doing that every three weeks now. Uh, 11 million people misused uh, opioids uh, this past year, and two million of them were brand new misusers. So, so you can read that as you know. Eight million of them are either, you know, taking way more than they're supposed to, trying to, they write prescriptions, uh, they buy it on the street, they, and the other two million just started doing that. And if you compare it to heroin, we also had a million people use heroin last year with roughly uh, a fifth of that uh, starting for the first time. And the reason the first-time users are important is because uh, the life expectancy of these people uh, aren't forever. If you uh, think about it, uh, how, how, how long do you think an active heroin user lives from the time they start till the time they die? What's the average life expectancy? Anybody got a guess? Four years is dead on. So uh, you read the book. Four years is uh, when 50% of them from the time of first heroin use is when they die. Uh, and so they don't all die, but a few of them die that first year. And there's a lot of mixing with heroin and, and opioids, so I'm going to kind of, so some of the numbers are, you know, they're, they're not, many people die from fentanyl and uh, heroin use combined. So some of the numbers kind of cross over each other, but the, uh, it's uh, it's crazy world out there. And once they're caught, it's really a tough one to, to beat. The average, uh, if they're in a medical management program, I've got... Think about a 68 or a 69-year-old fellow who's actively, you know, taking methadone every day, to, and so they, they can be managed and have a good life and productive life if they're in a program to uh, to kind of curb their their cravings. The, the statistic here is that they're four times less likely to die if they're in an aggressive uh, uh, program. Here's a, a slide that just depicts the growth of uh, of heroin and opioid problem over the course of the past. Uh, I don't know, 13 years. I found this slide to be, I would say, uh, really busy, but really interesting. Let's see if I can blow it up. So if you look at it, uh, 2011, other than morphine, other than the green line, I think things look pretty good. You know, all, all of the numbers were down under the 5,000 level. Around 2007 is when there was a huge spike in pain clinics around the country. And that... Uh, that caused people to get huge amounts of uh, narcotics, and they diverted them all around the country. 
and you can just see, you know, 2011, that's seven years ago, it wasn't very long ago, you look at the vertical line of the, the synthetic opioid deaths, and all of them, even the meth, even the cocaine, all of them are just cruising up in just huge uh, uh, logarithmic uh, numbers. So uh, if you, they, you can see there, you'll, we're going to define a few things later about the difference between opioids and heroin, natural and synthetic, but those are all additives. So you get 30,000 for the synthetics, 15,000 for, uh, for heroin, and another 14,000 for the hydrocodone, oxycodone, those uh, overdose deaths. So it's truly an epidemic. Let's see if I can undo what I did. So I found this slide to be really interesting too, especially if you're a first responder. I'm going to blow it up a little bit. If you look at this, uh, this is a state. Uh, this is a slide that represents ambulance uh, trips that use Narcan. So uh, the dark brown are the high uh, incidents. The the light are the low incidents. But if you look at uh, Wood County, we're kind of in the middle. Uh, I was amazed at uh, some of the the counties up north, the Oneida and, and Forest and uh, Vilas County, counties that I think are pretty not very populated, super heavy use of heroin and lots of overdoses there. Uh, so this slide, this slide is, doesn't talk about uh, law enforcement using it. It's only ambulance trips, and it's just a representative. I expected it all around Milwaukee. Well, it's all over the state, and even the rural parts are sometimes even worse per capita. So some of my real life experience I've seen, so heroin addicts or opioid addicts tend to come to me when they have infections. I've seen bad infections in the arm such that uh, uh, the arm, I, I remember taking one guy to the operating room over 20 times uh, for his arm infections. Turns out that guy ended up in Madison and he lost his arm. You know, I've taken people, one of the, one of the addicts didn't have any veins left and uh, one of our a nurse anesthetist found a, found a vein in the chest wall, and then, sure enough, six months later, that guy is back in the operating room with a bunch of chest wall infections because because he learned where other veins were on his body, and, and it's just a it's just it's just amazing. Uh, I put this next slide in there because, from my personal experience, it's been a little bit interesting. I don't see tons of 25 year old men who have uh, these infections. I see a few. What I've, honestly, what's come to me, I've seen a lot of women. I've seen women who are not 17. I see them when they're 30 or 40 or 50. Uh, and some of them are in their childbearing years. Some of them, several of them have had many children, maybe four or five kids. And two in particular, uh, I just say this because it gives me insight into the, the disease. Two of the women... Uh, gave away their kids, gave them to the, the state, gave them up to the, as wards of the state. And at first I was, you know, appalled and they were sort of proud of it. Uh, and then I thought about it and, and I thought, well, maybe that's kind of good. It keeps them out of this dysfunctional kind of lifestyle. But if you really think about it, you know, what makes a, a woman give up her kids? You know, the, the power of this addiction must be so impressive to something that's so inherent to uh, I don't know, the depth of our soul, you would never give up your kids. If you're a mom, I just can't, you know, I can't think of it as a, as a dad, as, you know, and I see uh, the moms out there, if they're willing to give it up, you, it just must have uh, unbearable power. Um, this is uh, another personal experience. This is a, an evidence of what happens to, uh, to things that are injected. So you think about what uh, 
an opioid user does. They first start taking pills. Once they start taking pills, they, they meet other people who are taking pills and using heroin, and they realize that you can cut up pills and inject them and get a better high. So if you think about what are in pills, many times you'll have a pill that has 10 milligrams of the active substance in it. Another time you'll have one with 650 milligrams, and they're all the same size, or they're, they're you realize that the drug companies put in fillers in pills, and it's, it's totally okay to do, because uh, it makes the pill easier to take. Sometimes it slows down the absorption. It's good things. But the things they put in pills for fillers are toxic to the inside of us, but not uh, when you eat them. So there's talcum powder. That's a real common fill filler. Silicone, sand, uh, and methyl cellulose, you know, things that are ground up wheat. Uh, they put that in a pill, and when you eat it, no big deal. If it's sand, it just goes out the other end. If it's, if it's wheat, you absorb it and it's a teeny bit of carbs. But the thing is, if you cut this up and put some water on it and inject it into your veins, your bloodstream is not designed to see sand floating around in it. The sand and the, and the wheat germ uh, go and they go into, uh, into different spaces. Here's a, a sad case of a woman who was caught in this uh, addiction. And on your left is a, is a slide of her spine. When it was okay, they were looking for a blood clot in her lung, and this is a CT scan. And this is her uh, about a year and a half later after an untreated and unrecognized infection from the, the fillers of the pills lodged into her spine and just melted away her bones and the discs. And so here's a pretty young woman walking around like uh, the humpback of Notre Dame with severe pain in her back from this kind of indolent chronic infection just, you know, eating her up. It's kind of kind of like cancer uh, that you put in there yourself. So... Let's talk about addiction. Addiction used to be a, uh, something that people were thought of as a lack of willpower or a moral failure, but now it's really a disease of the brain, and it's, it's recognized that it's chronic and relapsing. It gets influenced by a lot of things. Women get addicted faster than men, but women don't take nearly as much drugs as men. Why that is, we don't know. You know it's influenced by a lot of, of who your parents are, uh, your psychological state, a lot of environmental factors. And so some people don't get addicted right away. Sometimes it can be a week and you're addicted. And so it's a very variable phenomenon. It can, in, in, uh, in the drug addict, it's characterized by loss of control, even though you know that you're harming yourself or you have consequences that uh, are harmful. And it's also uh, associated with an intolerable craving for the drug. So opioid addiction is also unfair. It, uh, it uses our own body's hormones against us. We have uh, endorphins, the, the opioid of the brain. Uh, and when you take short-acting opioids, it tricks the brain into thinking that that's our natural endorphins. And once you have a kind of a, a steady state of it, your brain quickly becomes used to having that. And it thinks it's biologically essential. Once it's deprived of that, then it starts going into withdrawal so it causes this dysfunction both emotionally and physically. So you get, get shakes, you get uh, you know, cramping, you get pain. You, it makes all, all your pain receptors hurt when, even when you're not in pain. So it causes this uh, brain dysfunction. And the problem is even if you're able to achieve abstinence, even if you're able to achieve you know, people who can get off the drug, their brain tells them the, the lies that it, it needs these things for years sometimes. Sometimes... 10 years. That's why it's, it, the relapse rate is so high. So how did we get here? Back in the 90s, uh, the, the uh, 
pharmaceutical companies were on a big marketing campaign telling all the doctors that uh, if they're in pain, they won't get addicted. But um, what I said the other night, and I uh, believe this, I don't think that the doctors really believed this, that, that they couldn't get addicted. We were taught that these were addictive medicines. And uh, I think that a few things, I think that the doctors really didn't care that much about it. I think that uh, in all honesty, they thought they would get addicted, but it maybe wouldn't, wasn't a big deal, and then they'd just get off the medicines. And certainly that, that's been a little bit of my mantra. You know, people who have a femur fracture, you know, they're going to take medicines for a few weeks or a few months, and maybe they get a little addicted, and we'll just get them off of it, and it's no big deal. Truth is, um, we weren't really uh, educated about the true dangers of uh, drug diversion and how people can get caught with this. And so it's not that the drug companies are so evil, but they did market their uh, their new drugs pretty hard. There was a rampant increase in pain clinics. Uh, and I tell you, the easiest way to treat pain is to just write large uh, prescriptions for narcotics. And, and people are happy. The doctors are happy. They go away. And it seems all, all good for a while. Uh, and so an easy solution to the problem uh, was, uh, was sold and we, we bought it. Um, and what we found out is that opioids, they, they treat emotional pain really, really well. You can take uh, narcotics if you're depressed and you feel much, much better. If you think about the opium, opium wars, they were not fought over people who wanted to get out of pain. They were fought because they liked how it made their brains feel. Another thing that uh, was developed in the late 80s and early 90s was the WHO pain letter, the World Health Organization. It's basically a, a way to treat cancer pain, but it's kind of a mantra that was taught to all the medical students that you can start with anti-inflammatory agents, but as soon as uh, pain gets bad at all, you, you want to get to the narcotics. And it basically just solidified that, you know, the narcotics were the best pain relievers out there. So what can we do about this? So first of all, culture has to change. You guys are probably the people who uh, have already ch changed your culture. And so you don't need that as a lecture, but uh, there's a, we need to change uh, the idea of what of what's good and what's bad out there. Uh, medical prescription prescribing regulations have changed quite a bit, and certainly in this state, uh, and there's a lot more regulation. We can find out who's getting what drugs from other providers, and we even have to go onto the website and find out, uh, you know, check out the patients to whom we are prescribing the medicines to see if they're getting it from others. Uh, we should have community discussions. We should all get educated, and certainly there should be a lot more education to the medical providers, kind of changing the uh, the flow of the idea of uh, what's effective. So this, uh, I'd say it's imperative for our communities, and it protects all of us. So let's talk about the effectiveness for a little bit. The effectiveness of uh, opioids in treating uh, musculoskeletal pain, they certainly have been used for thousands of years. They Everybody thinks that they're the best uh, thing out there. But there's a lot of new evidence uh, that would refute this. It's, it, it won't refute that, there's, uh, that it, it treats the, the mental anguish of pain because it does that really, really well. But it's, uh, it's, you're going to find out that it's not the, uh, not the best peripheral pain uh, medicine. So opium is the plant from which morphine and codeine uh, are derived. So I'm going to talk a little definition here. Um, opium, I'm sorry. Morphine, codeine, and thebane are three of the 20 alkaloids that are available in opium. Uh, so the, that's, they are called opiates. So 
uh, Dilaudid is not an opiate, it is an opioid. So opioids are everything else that are made from morphine or codeine. So they're synthetic and non-synthetic, uh, or they're semi-synthetic, and there are synthetic opioids. The semi-synthetic are made from codeine or morphine, like hydrocodone or oxycodone or, or hydromorphone. And then there's the purely synthetic ones, including the, the new super strong one that just came out. So tramadol is a synthetic one. It's the weakest synthetic, and fentanyl was the strongest synthetic, and now there's a couple more that are even more potent. But it was interesting thing about uh, tramadol. It came out in 1999. Uh, it was classified for 15 years as a non-narcotic. Truth is, all of us knew that it was a, a light narcotic, where we just thought it had very low addictive potential. Truth is, tramadol has a lot of addictive potential. It's not that good of a pain medicine, but you can get addicted to it, and it's even not that good. So it's not just the pain relieving effects to which you get addicted. It's it's something else that happened to the brain. So a little bit about history. So for a th couple thousand years, you had only morphine to treat uh, or opium to treat uh, pain. Then in 19, or 1900, Bear uh, developed aspirin, really good medicine. It became uh, the standard of a non-steroidal anti-inflammatory medicine. So it's, uh, so it's not cortisone or not uh, hormone-based anti-inflammatory. Then in so you had that for 50 years until 1950 when uh, Tylenol came out. And then in the early 60s, there was probably 20 or so anti-inflammatories that came out. And since then, there's maybe been 10 more. So there, there's the two main groups, the anti-inflammatories of which aspirin and ibuprofen are type. And then there's Tylenol, which is a non-anti-inflammatory agent. The Tylenol is uh, good for pain relief in that, in that it doesn't bother your stomach but purely inflammatory pain is not that good for. So uh, you'll, you'll see that the anti-inflammatories uh, are tougher, tougher on the kidneys and the Tylenol is a little tougher on the liver. Truth is, both of that, both of them are sort of uh, the over-marketed. I would say the risks of these medicines, unless you're taking them you know, continually and at high, high doses, are, they're both extremely safe medicines. Certainly, Tylenol has been. Tylenol is only unsafe when you take uh, you know, more than 20 pills a day. So uh, doctors prescribe because they think that uh, things work or don't work based on their perception. And certainly their perception is that uh, narcotics have been the best. But there's been a couple of new um, big studies done by, uh, by people who are not... Uh, not owned by the drug companies. So there's a couple of uh, agencies out there that are non nonprofit, funded by governments, and they do their own research and they don't get any money from Merck, Sharp, and Dome or, or Dow. And so uh, I'm going to quote a few things to you. Some of them are technical. You know, some of us might be might make sense to you easily. Some might not, but it'll become clearer later. Something called the number that's needed to treat. So if you if a medicine uh, is 100% effective, its number to needed to treat, or NNT, is one. And so uh, a good oral pain medicine is that, so is the number is two and a half, is a good oral pain medicine. So what that means is that you have to treat two people, two and a half people, for it to be 50% effective. So uh, a, a poor medicine would be one that with a number of 10. 
So you have to treat 10 people before you get actual relief of one. So for oral pain medicines, uh, a, a really, really good one is one and a half. Uh, a pretty good one is two and a half. So here's a couple of uh, studies that were done. Uh, medicine that I used to use a lot of, oxycodone uh, in the form of Percocet. Um, 15 milligrams of oxycodone to me is a pretty darn high dose. And it gives you a number needed to treat of 4.6. You almost have to treat five people to have 50% relief of their pain. And to me, that's lousy and that's surprising. But it's not surprising that you look at the next one, the oxycodone 10, and uh, I think that's 650. So that's, a, that's two Percocets gets you into the good range, 2.7. But what is surprising is that, you know, two Aleve or 500 milligram naproxen in a double-blinded, random, prospective study where no one else is paying for it, they say that it's the equal pain uh, relief from uh, prescription strength Aleve compared to two Percocets. That, to me, is uh, eye-opening. And it's even more so uh, when, you, when you take a, a weenie dose of ibuprofen and you put it with Tylenol, and you get an even better relief of pain when you combine the Tylenol and the, the ibuprofen in it. So uh, there, that was done with uh, a Cochrane study. That's a large uh, group in Europe. Uh, this is a different study, Bandolier, where they came up with very similar uh, results. I happen to use diclofenac. I like that a lot. Uh, it was fun that that turned out to be their best, uh, best medicine against pain. And if you look midway down or even further down, there you, you have Percocet, uh, oxycodone 10s plus 1,000 of Tylenol, you get 2.7. I'm suspicious that the Tylenol addition is the thing that really makes it, it good. And further down, um, you know, pure morphine, even worse than that. And so the idea of, so the way they question these folks is that they'll have a broken femur. They'll give them, you know, a leave. And they'll ask their pain. They'll say what their number is. The, now, the folks who get Percocets or the folks who get morphine, they may not care as much. They may enjoy it, but they'll tell them that the number is the same or not as good as if they get an anti-inflammatory agent and uh, Tylenol. You notice tramadols down at the bottom of this, uh, yet it's still very addictive, but the, the true pain relief uh, function of tramadol is, is pretty poor. Now, there's all sorts of, kind of kinds of pain. And so there's a kind of pain that you're, the kind of pain on the right certainly needs a whole bunch of narcotics, you know, because what you want to do is disassociate the mental stress of pain from uh, what's going on. And then there's the other kind of pain, which just needs a little uh, ice bag and a hug. So that was my son, by the way. So no, no HIPAA violation. So there's acute, pi uh, acute pain, there's chronic pain, there's all kinds. There's neuropathic pain. They're, they're treated very differently. As you, as you get into it, some, some is long, uh, some is short. Some is uh, cancer pain, there's shingle pain. There's a lot of different pain that people describe. I, have, I, I personally think that uh, sickle cell pain or potentially renal uh, kidney stone pain, to me, seems like uh, it's more severe than a broken pelvis or a broken femur. Uh, I get to see a lot of bone pain. It's not it's not, not severe, it's severe, uh, but it's maybe not the most severe pain out there. Certainly the most mentally wearing is the uh, chronic pain. So some of the conclusions of their studies, I just want to, you know, that the gold standard should be a good anti-inflammatory agent and a whole bunch of Tylenol early on. And if that fails or when that fails in the, in the acute phase of things, adding short-acting opioids uh, and then 
soon thereafter, after the surgery, after the acute phenomenon, you know, trying to wean from the short-acting opioids quite soon after that. We're going to get into some chronic uh, avenues uh, where they use a lot of alternatives, and I'm going to go over those. But uh, highly minimizing opioids is going, to, is going to be the mantra from here on out. All of this has got a caveat that you should uh, check for pre-existing liver or ulcer disease, uh, and, as well as blood thinners and other things that can change how uh, you're going to prescribe. So in terms of alternative prescribing options, which is part of the title of this, I want to kind of dive into this just to kind of be clear that there's a lot of different uh, alternatives that we use, and probably, uh, probably one of the most common ones are antidepressants. So there's several groups of anti antidepressants. Uh, the studies show that the tricyclic antidepressants tend to be the most effective in helping treat pain because pain certainly has a mental uh, capacity to this. And I see people with all sorts of uh, acute issues. Some of the acute issues I bring on when I do surgery on people, I'd say I have about a 40% uh, depression rate in women three weeks after a, a knee replacement and almost a 60% depression rate in men. A lot of times that's just uh, evidenced in, you know, disturbed sleep patterns or crabbiness to their husband or wife. And so it's not entirely, you know, major depressive, but clearly signs of depression. And uh, not everybody uses, nor, and nor do I use antidepressants for the people who have, um, I'll say, acute or uh, situational depression because at four weeks or five weeks, boy, the, the lights are brighter and everything's better. I tend to warn them that, you know, half of the people are going to get depressed. And, uh, and what I'm trying to avoid now is not covering that depression with opioids because that's historically what I've done. If they do have depression, tricyclics are the best thing for it. They're most effective. However, uh, when, when women find out that it comes uh, with some associated weight gain, that's usually off the table. So uh, there's a few other classes, the SSRIs and NRIs, that, are, uh, that help with pain as well. One of them, bupropion, is associated with a little bit of weight loss, so that's usually a more popular one. And actually, it's medium effective uh, for helping uh, curb some pain and certainly curb some of the, uh, the mental effects. But basically, my... Uh, experience, those four, bupropion and Cymbalta, are probably the two uh, that are, um, I've seen it make a big dent. And usually it's just a couple, three weeks of it and uh, for the acute pain and others. Uh, for folks who have chronic, long-term fibromyalgia kind of pain, definitely I would like to see them on, uh, on Wellbutrin and Cymbalta. There's also been a new move, uh, I'd say that's probably in the past 10 years, of using anti-convulsants. This is from a from a medical, pharma, pharmacological geek kind of perspective. It's neat how this works. So anti-convulsants are seizure medicines, medicines that keep your brain from having uh, a seizure. You think of it, the brain is the biggest nerve we have, and anti-convulsants work by calming or settling down the electrical impulses that the brain has. So in small doses, uh, anticonvulsants subdue the peripheral nerves and they make the, the nerves still feel the same way, but when they're over agitated and they feel buzzing, tingling, burning pain all the time, taking a little bit of an anticonvulsant, certainly gabapentin, tends to uh, decrease neuropathic pain very, very well. 
not everybody can take it. It has some side effects that some people can't tolerate. But usually if you introduce it slowly, uh, you can have someone on, on some gabapentin and, you know, up it every, a little bit every week and they don't notice the side effects. The side effects of them are usually sedation and, uh, and sometimes a little mental fogginess. So usually if you back it off or leave it a little while, the side effects go away. Yes. Yeah, it's interesting because they're using it for uh, depression and they're, if you take a lot of it, you get high. Uh, it definitely, it's a dopaminergic um, blocker. And you, uh, and so if you take a lot of gabapentin at once, you can OD on it. A couple people have died and you can overtake it and, and have it be a, a euphoric uh, stimulant. With gabapentin, I don't know of any other routes besides oral that they take it, but I, uh, if you were to inject it, I don't, I, I'm, I don't know. And so I, I, and I think it's just that. I think if you hoard it and take, you know, eight pills, and if you then then you get a, a euphoric feeling, and that's that's what I know about it. And I know it's not a it's not controlled like like morphine is at all. Uh, but they they do keep track of it now, and so I believe that there's a weak, uh, you know, area for abuse. Mm-hmm. Yes, you can see the as well. And I would say it's nothing like, I, I use it in people who have, are opioid dependent. I think it's a great medicine that's not very addictive. So I would say it's super, super low compared to uh, a narcotic. So abusable, yes, it's abusable. I can think of one person in my practice who uh, seeks it. Uh, for that sort of effect, but uh, it's a, a microcosm of the rest of it. So another area of muscle relaxants, this too is, a, is not very well regulated. Uh, the government would like us to prescribe cyclobenzaprine. My experience with that is it, um, it's pretty weak, and, but it's uh, effective for people who have back pain. Uh, the one that they don't like me to prescribe, and it's my favorite, is carisoprodol. So those, all four of them are centrally acting muscle relaxant. And so my, my favorite one is the last one. It does give you uh, five minutes or so of euphoria that slightly, but it really takes the spasm up. And so from, a, from an effective st- standpoint, it's a great medicine. And, uh, you know, I, I caution people not to drive on it, at least not for the first time they take it. Most of the time, these people are laying in bed and, and trying, or trying not to go to the emergency room. So... Uh, so I think that that I think they'll be also regulated a little more in the future, just because they probably have some potential for abuse. But I, I don't think it's very high. So anxiolytics, fancy word that basically are things that you can read here. They're calming agents. They're sedatives, and they they kind of interrupt uh, the anxiety associated with uh, things. And the problem problem with pain is that a lot of times pain is associated with depression and depression and anxiety are uh, our soulmates. And so trying to break the, uh, the anxiety is, uh, is important. And the problem, uh, the problem with these is that now uh, we've made a little, a few strides in 2018. We backed down some of the opioid deaths, except uh, 
the benzodiazepines, which of the, which is this class of medicines, uh, are when you combine them with opioids, it suppresses uh, respiratory depression. Uh, you have a lot more respiratory depression with it, and there's actually the deaths from opioids and benzodiazepines are up in 2018. So people are maybe using more Xanax or lorazepam instead of opioids, and some people are abusing them and dying. Uh, so it's a lethal combination. So uh, medical marijuana, obviously a big hot topic in our uh, polls for the past uh, week. Um, it's, uh, it's by definition a very dangerous medicine. Uh, the idea of using medical marijuana for pain control is, uh, is almost always uh, over-marketed. There are a few people, uh, a couple epileptics and a couple people who you know, absolutely need it. Uh, the idea that medical marijuana um, helps with pain control is a farce. They, it's, the, it's one of the worst pain uh, medicines out there. But um, it seems compassionate when people have cancer and you want to do anything for them. You want to vote for using medical marijuana to help uh, people with cancer get out of pain. Truth is, it's not a bad, bad reason to use it for people with cancer, but just not to treat pain. The problem with having it available for medical marijuana it's, is it can be completely abused and prescribed for pain for the average 25 and 30 year old. Uh, and that's not, it does not work at all for that. Uh, it's a, definitely an entry level drug to uh, other uh, other medicines. It is not a substitutionary drug, which is what they thought. They might be able to get people off heroin by just getting them to be addicted to marijuana. And it turns out that it's just a companion drug. They use them together, and there's been no decrease in uh, in heroin use because you know there's been availability of marijuana. Colorado uh, proves that they have had the this country's longest medical marijuana program, and they've had their highest heroin uh, abuse rates in the past year. So it's not uh, you know new, a lot of states are going to it, and I would bet that we will as well. Um, and it will only worsen our, uh, our drug uh, phenomenon. Mar marijuana is proven to make you lazy and mellow and, and feel good it, and hungry. It just not, it's not been proven to treat pain at all. So uh, non-prescription alternatives, so things like chiropractics or um, different things. My favorite one, I got to tell you, is surgery. If you have uh, back pain, there's a lot of things that we can do for with surgery. There's, on this slide are a list of a lot of different things. Um, radiofrequency ablation, kind of fancy word. You'll see some pain clinics that, that uh, do this. They burn little nerves and you'll, we'll, we've got a slide on that. A few things that I don't talk a lot more about but came up at the other uh, uh, talk was uh, nerve stimulators, electrical nerve stimulators. You can have them that are on the skin. We call them TENS units transcutaneous electrical nerve stimulation. You can buy them at Shopko now with battery packs. They actually work pretty well. Uh, it's just that they're not as easy as a pill, but they do help local pain. There's also the implantable ones. The implantable ones are fraught with uh, problems, infection, and lack of efficacy, but there are a few people who uh, continue to use them. They are not paid for by uh, insurances typically, and they're extremely expensive. Uh, we had a fellow the other night that said his uh, nerve stimulator in 2003, um, which he didn't pay for, uh, was uh, 
the whole price was 188000 for the implantation. So, yeah, there you go. There you go. Remember the number. But some people uh, use, uh, use them and are, uh, you know, it's effective for them. It's hard to know who's going to be effective. So if you've got uh, worn-out knees, don't take narcotics home. Get surgery. Got uh, spinal stenosis. There's great uh, fixes for these that uh, only require narcotics for a week and uh, tend to have uh, quite good uh, outcomes. Uh, in terms of radiofrequency ablation, uh, when you can find a specific nerve, sensory nerve, that is causing you pain, uh, it's possible to isolate that nerve and burn it and break or break up the signals of the pain generation. Generally, when you uh, you'll need narcotics to uh, to recover from the burned nerve feeling for a while, and that sometimes leads to problems, especially in pain clinics where they do nerve burnings every every six months uh, because they grow back and the what we know from medicine is that they don't really grow back, but they're not probably uh, gone. So they they still give you some pain, but they do seem to modulate your pain. So there's some improvement or some areas that might uh, be a benefit around a worn-out knee or around certain specific areas. If you can isolate that area, potentially you can improve their pain by damaging the nerve uh, through burning it. Uh, but it's very controversial, and I've seen this concept uh, abused uh, highly. In fact, I have several patients. Uh, I have one patient who I like to find out how much they spent. Uh, this fellow spent $81,000 on injections at a pain clinic out of his pocket. Uh, and, you know, rampant injections and rampant uh, radiofrequency ablations, uh, they are negligence and shouldn't be tolerated. So here's back to the manipulation uh, in terms of chiropractics uh, and massage. I think all those things are have their place. Uh, they do a great job of doing, you know, local spasm control. Um, problem is, is that they're oftentimes used for lots of other things, you know, blood pressure control, headache, lots of things. I think they're great for, um, for focal or identified problems. There's also a whole area of things about which I, I am not an expert, and essential oils, if they make you feel great, I think it's more power to you. In, 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 in general, uh, if something doesn't cost you too much and there's not a lot of side effects, I think trying acupuncture and anything else is uh, certainly okay. So in summary, I would say that uh, pain, from a culture perspective, we, uh, we should learn that it's not the worst thing in the world. Uh, I, I left something off of... Uh, my talk earlier, that's part of the part of our problem is that pain has become being pain free is turned into a right, uh, and uh, no one promised us that we'd be pain free. But uh, if we try to be pain free uh, pharmaceutically, we have all these other problems. So I would say, public enemy number one is not pain, but opioids. Maybe uh, we should. Uh, you can treat the mental stress of pain. Uh, for short periods of time with opioids, but then that can't be part of the, the chronic, uh, chronic treatment. Otherwise, uh, it changes the people's brains permanently. And if you, as a provider, as a medical prescriber, we need to know that we're, we're damaging these people for years or potentially indefinitely if we take that route. And we have to weigh the benefits, and almost never are the benefits of that 
outweighing the risks because the risks to the patient and to their family members and the community are great. Opioids are not the best pain relievers, uh, but Tylenol and anti-inflammatory agents are, and they're almost always the most safe uh, to prescribe. The, uh, and the consequences of uh, over-prescribing opioids are, are wide-ranging, and, uh, and this has been eye-opening to me that, you know, potentially that I've been part of the problem even in this community, and I'm trying to uh, undo that. So uh, pain management clinics, there are dangerous places. They may be uh, okay for uh, a few people and for certain kinds of therapies such as, you know, radiofrequency ablation perhaps or maybe a nerve stimulator, but they should be heavily uh, watched. And every, uh, every addict in our community should have access and brought into a, a medical management center uh, so that uh, so they can live longer and live productive lives. And that I think culture change is definitely a really important part of this, and you guys are uh, are part of the change in the culture. And that you know ultimately opioid prescribing absolutely has to be curbed. And uh, this is probably the best way to get high, either uh, either on a mountain or uh, in the air. So, thanks for your uh, attention. Thanks for tuning into the podcast. We hope you use this information to strike up a local conversation. We believe in the power of community and story here at the library, and we have plenty of stories in book, ebook, CD, DVD, and magazine form. Check us out at macmillanlibrary.org to see upcoming events, including concerts, speakers, movies, and more. We also have free online classes through Gale Courses, as well as a host of databases for your research needs. If you can't find what you're looking for, stop in at the information desk. The Macmillan Conversation Maker podcast can be found at macmillanlibrary.org backslash podcast. Podcast.